The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, put down that flute of kava and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 575 with guest Steven Sanderson, recorded live Tuesday, July 6th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... Man who is really gonna miss saying the word Vuvuzela, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much and welcome back. It's .NET Rocks. It's Carl. It's Richard. It's .NET. We're loving it. Are you loving it? It's good. How are you, my crazy Canadian friend? Ah, uh, it's summertime, man. It's time to barbecue all the time. It's freaking hot. Yeah, it's hot. Hot enough for better know a framework. Pow, pow, pow. That's the greatest seg ever. Oh, you like that seg? I love that. Hot seg. enough for a better no framework. Can what we do you be got for me, my Any friend? lamer. That's not lame. That was brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. All right. Today I'm going to talk about uh, the ASP.NET MVC uh, Ajax namespace, ah. system.web.mvc.ajax, and specifically the Ajax extensions class which represents support for ASP.NET AJAX within an ASP.NET MVC application. Cool. Contains methods that extend the AJAX helper class. Each extension method renders the uh, an HTML element. The action link method renders an anchor element that links to an action method. The route link method renders an anchor element that links to a URL, which can resolve to an action method or a file or a folder or some other resource. This class also contains begin form and begin route form methods that help you create HTML forms that are supported by Ajax functions. Awesome. You know, if this show ever goes belly up, I could have a whole career in reading documentation to the community. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do for a living? I read help files. Nice. Yeah. But there is some great there's there's great samples and I'm I'm taking this right out of the MSDN documentation. Just go to Bing, just search for it, and uh, you'll find it. Uh, very very easy. Or you could just you know be writing an application and hit F1 too. That'll bring you there. Great samples. So who's talking to us and what are they saying? This is an interesting one. This might get to you, but it's very relevant to the show we're doing today. First off, great show. As you must know. Steve Sanderson's MVC book has been highly regarded, and his blog is equally excellent and provocative, too. You don't say. You don't say. I appreciate his fresh take and independent thinking, particularly after a recent community college .NET instructor told me this, after I suggested that maybe Link to SQL might not work well for those complicated queries that you run in the real world. And here's the quote from the instructor. If you work on a project as the sole developer, you are free to choose whatever technologies you believe will work best and you make you the most efficient. However, if you work on a project with multiple developers, most likely you will be using the technologies which Microsoft recommends as its leading options. It mm. is hard to imagine any enterprise-level application which doesn't use some combination of Entity Framework and Link. 
As with agnostics in the Catholic Church, simply as an example, expressions of concern about the weaknesses of any of these technologies would probably be better reserved for your close friends at work or colleagues away from work. Okay. His response, yes, Father. I was so sickened by his response that I skipped the final. Keep up the good work, which has inspired me and I'm sure many others, and get Steve on. Get the scoop on MVC and all those good technologies. And that came from Bill Berentz, and he didn't say where he's from. But we'll his find P- out. His P.S. was particularly poignant. P.S. The instructor is right, of course, but it would be such a better world if he hadn't been. Okay. <laughs> First off, Bill... He's not right. He's wrong. I may have been accused of being a Microsoft shill in the past, and I firmly say that I'm not. I use their technologies, but I don't use them recreationally. You know, work is work, and sometimes this makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. Tons of great enterprise-level applications have been built without any framework or link. Just because Microsoft says it's important doesn't mean it is. Trust us on that. Use it judiciously the main thing you want out of group of developers is agreement on what tools you will use heck you might even be able to build an app in vb6 you never know hey it still works so yeah don't believe him it's not a big deal pick whatever you want you know he made a mistake right there where you were talking about the merits of link to sql link to sql is essentially deprecated they're not going to drop it but they're not working on it anymore so you know don't worry about this. It's not that big a deal. And by the way, I think we will get Steve Sanderson on. And I'm going to send you a mug because you sent us a great email. And if you want a mug, send us an email, rocks at franklins.net. Think we should interview uh, Steve Sanderson? Oh, what the heck? How about now? Our guest today is Steven Sanderson. Steven is an independent software developer living and working in Bristol in the UK. He's sometimes an author or a presenter, but is mainly a programmer with interests in web development, security, and agile principles and practices. Steve recently wrote Pro ASP.NET MVC2 Framework from APRESS, the second edition to the best-selling and top-rated ASP.NET MVC cookbook on Amazon. He's a Microsoft MVP, a member of ASP Insiders, and regularly blogs and releases open source code at blog.stevensanderson. That's with a V, not a PH. stevensanderson.com. Hi, Stephen. Welcome. Hello. How are you doing? Excellent. Excellent. Good. Good. So what's up? Hey, you know, I was looking at your blog, and uh, it looks like just recently, maybe as early as yesterday, you released in that would be July fifth, uh, knockout. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's a, a UI uh, toolkit on top of HTML and JavaScript that I've been working on for I don't know about a month or two months or something like that. Whenever I got the spare time, and that gives you a way of doing rich user interfaces on top of HTML uh, that are responsive, like a desktop application is responsive. So um, different yeah. parts of the UI will update as they need to according to an underlying data model. That users servers, just like a, a bit like Silverlight, how Silverlight does bindings, and um, so things kind of stay up to date. And speaking of bindings, I I like how the second paragraph in your blog post says what distinguishes Knockout from all the other similar sounding JavaScript libraries. Give us a give us an overview of some of the unique features of Knockout. Okay, well, um, to put it into context, uh, what what we're comparing against, I suppose, is there's a lot of different JavaScript libraries. I mean, there's dozens of them, obviously, um, not just jQuery really popular, but there's loads of sort of like MVC inside the browser systems. And um, in fact, I did one myself back in 2007. Um, the, some of the teams in Microsoft have been doing things that are a bit like that recently, like their data linking system and that. So uh, in that sense, it's not a new idea, but um, I've been doing a lot of work actually using these kind of technologies recently, and out of that experience, I've uh, come to think of some additional features that are really useful, and uh, sort of sticking those things together and building on it, I've found that it's uh, it's pretty exciting what you can do. So the key differences, what I've listed on my blog post there, are the fact that Knockout automatically tracks dependencies between different things inside your model. So if you've got a view model that represents the data that's being displayed. Um, so, for example, a list of items and then another uh, model value, which is which items are selected. Then if you want to um, produce a list of just the selected items, um, if you've got 
an observable that represents those values, then Knockout will automatically track how that changes when the underlying data changes. When the set of underlying items changes or the selection changes, it will automatically notice that and update uh, the list of selected items, if you know what I mean. Yeah, kind of like uh, if we were going to build an object for a customer and it would have a, a first name and a last name property, that, and we had a read-only property that said name or display name or something like that, it would update. But we don't really have all that, all that goo in JavaScript. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So, of course, you could have just done that with a method called full name that just concatenates first and last name together, which is fine if you know that you want to read it. But then how do you get notifications? Right. You know, how do you know when the underlying data has changed? You don't know. Well, any, what, any, any right. tool that can take all that goo off my plate is, is a good tool. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So in other technologies, you might have something like iNotify property changed uh, that's commonly used in Silverlight. And right. you could do something similar in JavaScript, but then you have to manually wire lots of stuff together. So the automatic tracking just takes that out, and it just means the framework can know what the associations between your different variables are without you having to say it. That's pretty powerful. Um, yeah, it's, it's really cool. I, I'm quite... Whenever I use it and, and I see something working, and I just think, wow, that's so cool, because I, I didn't really have to write any code, and it just started working. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy about that. And then another key thing that's different is the um, the way it interacts with your HTML. So there's been this um, sort of trend over the last, well, since jQuery came along, to, um, to try and move as much markup um, outside of your HTML as possible so we don't really have sort of on-click handlers and such like uh, directly in the... DOM, and that's really good, but it does add this extra layer of uh, indirection between your markup and your code that makes it a little bit harder to track. And um, what I found is that by putting in not inline click handlers or anything like that, but um, uh, custom attributes that describe the uh, the way that DOM elements are bound onto your underlying data model, you get a really sort of direct and simple way of programming the DOM. So onto a DOM element, you could say, I want to bind the text content of this DOM element to a property on my model, and then Knockout registers that, and it will automatically update the content of the span or whatever it is whenever the data model changes, and you have to tell it to do that. Yeah. Yeah, nested templates is a is a really uh, nice feature that you list on your in your blog post. You're using the jQuery-TMPL template engine by default, but you can plug in other templates. As well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the jQuery TMPL, I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce that template engine, is another thing that's come out of Microsoft recently. Um, there's uh, a, a group of people, or one person, I don't know how many, called um, the .NET jQuery extensions, and they have produced this templating engine. Um, it's based on, I think, one that John Resig created originally. He's the guy who created jQuery, and it's really simple. The whole thing is probably only about 80 or 100 lines of code or something like that, but it just gives you a way of of defining through text-based templates how to transform a JavaScript object onto some HTML. Yeah. So that's a kind of natural way of building up a, a big block of HTML instead of doing it through lots of uh, DOM manipulations in code. And uh, Knockout uses that optionally. You don't have to do things through templates. You can just bind your DOM elements straight to things on your model if you want. But you can also do, do the binding through templates. So you can say, let's populate this element with the results of rendering this template against this bit of my model. And, of course, it does that. And then if your model changes, it knows that it needs to re-render the template. And uh, you can render templates from inside templates. And because of the way the dependency tracking works, if the underlying data changes, then it knows that it only needs to render the innermost templates that have been updated. So it doesn't re-render every single thing on the whole screen every time anything changes. It is kind of implicit that it's only going to re-render the things that have actually been affected by that change. That's very, very slick. The um, model view, view model pattern, as you were, you were talking about, which is sort of, you know, the, the, the pattern that you're, they're using, uh, you're, you're going to make most uh, use of with Knockout. It, uh, you know, it was created, uh, it came out of Microsoft for really a, a presentation uh, pattern, adaptation that really works with WMV and Silverlight, but it isn't without its uh, criticisms. You know, uh, okay. even even John himself has said that, you know, for, for very simple UI projects, it's kind of overkill. Do you see, what's your position on MVVM? Um, well, I guess it's probably useful to actually explain 
what that is and, and maybe how it differs from something like MV- MVC for mm. listeners who aren't familiar with that. And then maybe we could talk about the sort of pros and cons. Um, so if, if we wanted to distinguish it against MVC, well, um, in the MVC, as that is used by, let's say, SPN MVC or Ruby on Rails or that sort of thing, that's a design pattern that's really optimized around uh, stateless user interfaces, so, which is why it works great on the web because HTTP is stateless. So right. uh, in MVC, you, your controller is the thing that kind of takes all the initiative. So when the user takes some action, the, the request goes into the controller and that then decides what to do. So the controller decides right. to speak to the model or it decides it wants to render a view. And if it does want to render a view, it decides what data to pass to the view and everything like that. So the controller really is the boss there. And the view is really dumb, you might say, or simple. It doesn't really know anything other than just how to transform some object into some markup. So the view is really simple, and the controller takes all the initiative. And that's, you know, that works great on the web because an HTTP request comes in and it's got no prior context because HTTP is stateless, and so it makes sense to have this thing in the middle that kind of does everything when a request comes in. Um, But MVVM is a little bit different to that. So... That stands for model view view model, and mm-hmm. the model bit is really the same as the model bit from model view controller in that it's some sort of back-end stuff that, you know, whatever represents your business domain or some kind of persistence or whatever. Right. Um, but then we've got view and view model. And the view and the view model aren't really comparable to the view and the controller from MVC because M- MVVM is really optimized for user interfaces that are more persistent, that sort of you know, stay on your screen and don't disappear every time the user takes some interaction. Right. So they're more like uh, Windows Forms or Silverlight or something where it's not a sequence of HTTP requests, but it's a user interface that stays there. And so MVVM splits the user interface bit into two parts, the view model and the view. And the view model is just an abstract representation of the data and commands that are exposed by that user interface. It's so sort, of like a, it, sort of like a stateful controller. You could think of it that way. Uh, yeah, sort of, except that it's it's not really controlling anything else. It's just representing right. the state of the interface. Right. So if you've got some data that's being displayed, then it's holding that data. And if there's commands like a, an and or add or a delete or something like that, then there would be methods with those names. So it just represents in a completely abstract way that user interface. And it could yeah. just be a C-sharp class. It doesn't have to inherit from anything or, uh, you know, it's just nothing but a plain object. Um, because it's got no understanding of any particular UI technology, it's completely abstract. That makes it quite easy to scale up in complexity because when you're coding that, you're just thinking about whatever language you're using. You're not thinking about any kind of UI framework. And if you wanted to write unit tests against it, then obviously you can do that because there's no dependencies on anything else. It's just pure logic. Um, But then obviously you need to display that in some way, and that's what the view does. It's a graphical representation of the view model. And that uh, is if, if you're in Silverlight, that would be some XAML thing that creates uh, buttons and lists and such like. And when the user performs some action inside the view, like they click a button or something, then the view model just calls, sorry, the view then calls some method on the view, view model. It's really just and, like a big data converter or value converter, if you think um, about it that way. I mean, yeah. there's yeah, maybe. Yeah, another layer of abstraction to make it easier to, to plug in at different UI. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, and also the view needs to be updated when something in the view model changes because invoking some action on the view model might cause it to change its state in some way. And then you need to update the UI. So the way that works is that the view has some kind of binding on the view model. So uh, it will automatically be notified if some properties change. And because it works using bindings instead of the view model calling back into the view, the communication is one way. Right. So the uh, the view calls the view model, but the view model doesn't call the view. The view model doesn't even know or care about the view. It doesn't even know that the view exists. So um, so it's binding. Yeah. So so it, it is a you, well. We got a good idea what it is, but um, it does seem like it's it's makes things very complex, and especially for large applications. So you know, for simple UI operations it can be overkill for large projects it can be very difficult to control so where is where's the sweet spot for in terms of maybe the size or scope of a project 
Well, I would actually say that I would agree possibly for a very simple user interface that it would be unnecessary to do to have that extra level of abstraction. But I would actually say the more complex your UI gets, the more applicable the MVVM pattern is. And if you've got a, a very sophisticated user interface, let's say you've got something like if you were building PowerPoint or something, um, then there are loads of buttons on the screen and they've all got different states. Sometimes they're sort of shaded, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're disabled, uh, sometimes you know, some parts of the UI have got lists of what slides are available in this thing at the moment, and there's yeah. just loads of stuff, and it all has to be updated in sync. And if you didn't have this extra abstraction, then every time you take some operation, like let's say you delete a slide, then the event handler for doing that has got to go off and talk to loads of other parts of the user interface and say, oh, you should be disabled now, and you should be enabled, and you should change the number of elements. And that would be really complicated because yeah. every action would have to talk to every other part of the UI. I guess Whereas, it's just that large applications are complex in general, and uh, without without MVVM, it would be even more difficult to control. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't have to be that complicated. So even if you've just got a, a simple list editor, then you've got enough complexity there to really get some benefits, because you might want the add button to be enabled or disabled, depending on whether you've typed in something that can be added, and the delete button to only be visible if you've got at least one thing to delete or whatever. So having that abstract extraction makes that really easy, and you don't have to then think about how each action affects the rest of the UI. You just allow each action to change the underlying view model, and then the view changes to match the view model. And you do see folks that get awfully frustrated with MVVM because they're either taking on something so small as their test case that it just seems like a lot of extra plumbing. I think the bigger one I've run into is that uh, ultimately there is a lot of architectural decisions to be made around a pattern that sometimes folks don't make good choices on and they can get tangled up. That's right. I guess, yeah, managing where where things go. Where does the logic go, for example? You know, does yeah, it go okay. in the view model? Point, yeah. yeah, well, uh, it depends what kind of logic you're talking about here. If you're talking right, about right. business logic, then, yeah, absolutely, that's what the model's there for. So if, you, if you've got some rules about... Uh, people can only make transactions when they've been approved by a manager or something, then yeah, yeah definitely that kind of logic would go into your model. That goes in the but model, got, but there are other things that might be more appropriate in the view model. You know, I'm so thinking you, sort of validation always, type of things, perhaps. Yeah, validation is always an awkward one, really, because in a sense, in a, in a purist kind of sense, validation is a model concern. So if your business has a rule that account numbers have got to be this number of digits long, then it is a business rule. And in that sense, it does go in the model. And it does have to be validated in the model, even if the user interface fails to validate it. But at the same time, for sort of practical technical reasons, it's often necessary to do that kind of validation up in the UI layer as well, because you don't want to wait until the user tries to commit some sort of transaction before the model says, oh, no, you can't do that because your account number was the wrong length. You really want to give them real-time feedback about that. So you kind of end up having to do that kind of logic in two places, which is a bit awkward. But and it's been a, that's not a, something that's unique to MVVM, actually. No, I mean, this, that's, is, this has been a complaint for 30 years of client-server development. You've got to validate in two places. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, so, yeah, the MVVM being quite optimized for um, UIs where the UI sticks around for a while uh, is a really nice fit for stuff that's done in JavaScript because, you know, if you're doing a series of AJAX requests, if you're mutating the state inside the browser, then uh, naturally you've got some user interface that sticks around. And if it's more complex than something really trivial, then it can be useful to have a nice abstraction for the kind of data and operations that you're working with. And that is the MVVM pattern, really. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Yeah, what I like about this is the, uh, you know, you even mentioned the fact that this is just HTML. You could stick in whatever tags you want. It's just a question of where you're going to do with them ultimately. So you, you could take advantage of the fact that browsers aren't all that diligent about their syntax to uh, to create functionality this way. Yeah, well, you can you can certainly do weird stuff with your HTML if you want to. I'm not specifically uh, trying to force anybody to do that. I don't think there's any um, requirement to do that with Knockout. But, yeah, there's, there's no restriction on what you do with your DOM. That's certainly true. Well, I'm, you know, I've been reading more and more about HTML5 and seeing that this is the direction that the HTML standard wants to go, the, this separation of concerns so that HTML looks more and more structural rather than the actual code. Okay, 
do you mean in terms of it being more semantic or um, in terms well, of yes you know this is all about separation of concerns right html is good is turned into ugly goo quite some time ago and and the html5 spec seems to focus very much on the layout is separate from the structure is separate from the data oh yeah yes that's true yeah so um i think there's some uh, some tags and attributes that have been removed from the html5 spec because they are not considered semantic enough, and a lot, obviously, a lot more power is being added into CSS in terms of presentation. And there's an increasing trend of the use of JavaScript uh, on any kind of user interface. So, uh, yeah, definitely, the HTML is becoming more just the semantic structural of yeah. the application as we go and, along. Yeah, and, and I'm just laughing at that at these lovely libraries written in JavaScript. I remember we were just used to make fun of JavaScript. You know, that was the <laughs> The language of lowest common denominator, and it's right. it's it's not your dad's JavaScript. It's turned well, into a really very powerful platform. I hope you all realize that in five years, JavaScript will be the only language that any of us use. Ah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> now you're just being mean. So much for well, English, yeah. <laughs> it might be, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but you know, if you think about what the most cutting-edge web development platform is at the moment... Well, in terms of the front-end UI stuff, well, obviously, you've got JavaScript on the client. That's the one technology that works on all devices, whether it's, uh, you know, Firefox on a PC or Safari on an iPad or, you know, a Nokia phone or whatever. Of course, you're going to have JavaScript there. And in terms of what's happening on the server, well, if you think of what's, you know, the sort of coolest hip technology at the moment, it would be something like um, Node.js, which is the server-side framework written purely in JavaScript. That's incredibly fashionable in certain communities and, you know, it's got a reasonable argument to, to claim that it could be the future of server-side web development. And then in terms of back-end stuff, databases, well, you know, the cutting-edge stuff there is all the non-relational databases like uh, Couch and Mongo and such like. And what query language do they use? Well, again, it's JavaScript. So, you know, they're right from top to bottom. It's just JavaScript all the way through. And that's pretty compelling, really. I, I don't know if we'll, we'll absolutely get there in in five years, but it does seem to be a possible direction that things are heading. Now, this gets back to, you know, I, I was looking through Knockout and thinking, this seems very Silverlight-like, that, yeah, you know, you're bringing a, a, a very clean data binding model to JavaScript, which I think is amazing, but, it, you know, these are the sort of strengths of XAML and, and the Silverlight development model. That's exactly where the idea comes from. Yep, I didn't invent the concepts. Yeah, I mean, I've just um, just tried to pick out some of the nicest things that I like from Silverlight and um, try and get that on straight onto HTML and JavaScript. That's right. So, where do you sit on the whole HTML five will take over the world? Silverlight has got, hasn't got a hope kind of perception. Are you there? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I I don't know really. I I think that uh, Silverlight is is really nice if you are in its sweet spot, which is something like uh, desktop-like intranet applications where you can dictate what technologies people are going to be using. And then you've got the familiar .NET programming model. You've got Visual Studio. You've got a uh, really nice markup language in XAML. And it's, everything's beautiful and happy. But, of course, it's not going to run on an iPad anytime soon, as far as no. I know. So. Uh, it would be quite hard to sell it to a lot of clients for a public internet application. So um, in that sense, of course, HTML is is the one thing that you can rely on there. Uh, as for where we'll go in the future, I guess that's going to depend on a lot of commercial things, like to what extent Microsoft manages to persuade other people like Nokia and Apple and so on to get that technology into their platforms. Yeah. It's certainly... I just, you know, we, we have yet to see, but there's just some really, really compelling things about HTML5. I, I was relatively ignorant about it until recently, and I heard, you know, people talking about HTML5, and man, it's very silverlighty. Yeah. Very I, much. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm still a little bit, um, I don't think I'm in the sort of camp of people who love HTML5 yet. I, I can see that there's a lot of really good stuff in there, but it's, it seems to be quite specialist type things like the uh, web sockets. Uh, there's not that many applications for it. And uh, what else is there in there? Uh, there's things like the client side storage, which is again, good, but we're not doing, maybe, maybe that's not really a strongly felt need at the moment. That's just something that would be kind of cool if it was there. Um, but if people do want that, there's already well, video playback, you know, that's like, 
you know, the video codecs being right in defined in HTML is a very powerful thing. I mean, it's just one of those things where it's a standard that can be supported by everybody and doesn't mean that it will be, but I mean, it's a, it's really a standards grab at the moment. Yeah, it's definitely a step forward in terms of video. I think for most people, it's not practically that much different to just using Flash because that's pretty ubiquitous, but definitely it's a good thing that we're going to have an open standard going forwards. Yeah, well, there's this big battle over the codex, but you know, you bring in another issue here, which is really that uh, the question of what the adoption of HTML5 is going to be. Not everybody will update their browsers that day. Yeah, you know, how how long will we be? Like, we're just finally getting rid of IE6. Finally, oh, yeah. you know, ten years later. Yeah, I don't know. We're going to have a, a lengthy transitional period. I saw um, a quote from the, someone in the W3C saying that the HTML5 wouldn't specification wouldn't be finalized until 2022, and I just I just couldn't believe it. I thought it must be a typo. Surely they mean 2012, but I checked several other sources and. They do actually say 2022. Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit taken aback by that. I assume that we're going to get on with it, our development world anyway, without waiting for 2022. Um, but yeah, it, it does point to a fairly long transitional period if, if the spec isn't really nailed down yeah. yet. It says right here on, in Wikipedia, Ian Hicks, an editor of the HTML5 spec, expects it to reach the candidate recommendation stage during 2012 and become a W3C recommendation in the year 2022 or later. Yeah, yeah. It's just crazy. Which, Thereby clearly good. demonstrating the inefficiency of committees. <laughs> yeah. It's right. already been but 10 years. The world will have moved on by that stage anyway. We will yeah. have moved on. We probably won't be using HTML in 2022, so... <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know, unfortunately, I am not convinced. <laughs> <laughs> You know, these things stick around. I mean, IE6 lasted 10 years. Ouch. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, I mean, I'll, the thing that's interesting now is that there seems to be generally an energy around the community for a set of rules in HTML5 that are sturdy enough that uh, the platform developers are willing to build against it. The IE9 guys and uh, Apple's guys. I mean, there's enough folks out there saying, okay, well, this looks close enough. I'm going to build it. The problem, of course, without a ratified standard is every implementation is going to be different. Yeah, well, we've had that over and over, haven't we? Yep. Most of the standards that we really rely on and are most useful these days started off as something unofficial in the first place like uh, XML HTTP request, the underlying technology of AJAX was a Microsoft extension to IE, which they created just to support Outlook web access. And, uh, of course, that's, that's turned on to be just about the most important standard that's been added to the whole web since, you know, to whenever it came out. I don't know. Yeah, since Netscape 2. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik whose RAD controls outperform all others. Are you experiencing performance hits when handling millions of records with your Silverlight grid? Have you been frustrated by the amount of XAML code it takes to create a control template? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your app performance. And of course, there's no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building RAD controls for Silverlight, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution. Through UI and data virtualization, data sampling, and content recycling, RAD controls help you deliver unbeatable performance with your Silverlight apps. You can check out Telerik Silverlight Grid handling 50 million cells as a piece of cake or RAD chart working seamlessly with a million records. Just go to Telerik.com slash Silverlight slash performance for details. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. They truly make this show possible. Steve, you're a, a behavior-driven development pundit, I know, and uh, you can feel how uh, BDD ideas are moving many developers away from traditional test-driven development. What? Uh, I'm not so sure we've ever really talked all that much about BDD on I'm sorry, on I'm trying show. to get past traditional test-driven development. <laughs> I'm, just, yeah, I'm stuck on that um, one, Carl. I apologize. Yeah, well, you know, it is. It has become a tradition. It has become a uh, not just a, an option for many 
development shops. This is the way software is done. Yeah. Okay. Well, firstly, I should probably say I'm I'm not um, an authority on BDD. I I'm just somebody who has been uh, learning some of these ideas and trying to make use of them over the last few years and and finding that. I can relate to a lot of the things that the BDD people are talking about. So that's really all I would say in terms of my own kind of alliance to it. But um, if you want to kind of understand what, what these ideas are and where they come from, well, I, I suppose I'd start just by clarifying what TDD is, which is, is kind of obvious and everyone sort of knows it, but just to make sure that we can compare against it. Um, TDD is, well, it came out, it, it became into existence probably in about 2000, 2001, but it didn't really hit the mainstream until about 2005. And at that time, the sort of thing that um, was really central to what everyone was talking about was uh, we write tests first. So, you know, we've got this red-green refactor thing where you write a test and the test fails, and that says we have to write some code. So we write the code, and then the test goes green, and then uh, then we're happy. And if we want, we can refactor as long as we don't break the test, and, and that's all good. And... Uh, Traditionally, TDD has been also really tightly wrapped up with unit testing, so uh, it's it's always about testing really small units, small increments of progress. So you you specify a really small thing, and then you implement it, and then you get a green, and then you're happy. Um, so, that, so that's good as well. And uh, people say a lot about TDD that it, it's not a form of verification, it's a form of design. Uh, so... And that makes sense as well, because if it was a form of verification, then what, you'd have to write billions of tests to cover every possible kind of code path and every input and output, and it's not really practical. And it's not testing in the sense of like a beta tester tries to try every pathological case and and see if things break. It's it's not at all like that. So TDD really is more of a form of design of what your code is supposed to do, and then a way of checking that your implementation really matches that design. So that's all really nice, and... TDD has contributed a lot of positive stuff to the industry as a whole, I would say. It's given us a a higher focus on quality, and it's legitimized the idea that we don't just spend all our time churning out new code, but we actually mock out some time out of of every hour or every day or every week to um, actually uh, go over the quality and refactor and make uh, make sure things are really working properly. So lots of really good stuff that's come out of TDD there, but there are also some problems that have come out of TDD as well, some drawbacks with that methodology. And this is really what's led to BDD. So probably the first biggest and most obvious problem with TDD is the name, really. The fact that it's got the word test in it is just a major error because it means that people insist on thinking that it's a form of testing, even if you tell them that it's not, and you repeatedly go, no, it's design, everyone will go, yeah, yeah, I understand it's design. But even though they've said that, they still think it's about testing. So if you get a team of developers to start doing TDD, then it's quite often that they will just start churning out hundreds and hundreds of tests that just cover every possible case that they can think of and without really thinking what what design that actually describes. And that's very expensive to do, and it becomes expensive to maintain that code code as well if you've just got loads of repetitions of the same thing. And another problem with TDD, besides the word test, is the fact that uh, because of the way it's been very tightly coupled with unit testing, people tend to couple their tests with their implementation. So traditionally, if someone has got a class, then they would also have a test class for that class. So every test class, every class has got its test fixture. Every method's got a load of tests. So you've got this sort of this scenario where your your structure of tests mirrors the structure of the implementation, and that makes things difficult if you then later want to refactor. Because if you want to split a class into multiple classes or or something like that, then you kind of can't because the tests all say, no, you can't do that. As soon as you try to run the tests or compile them, they all complain that they expected your classes to be structured differently. And that acts as a bit of a disincentive to try and refactor and keep quality high. Now Um, the tests become inertia to actually improving your application. Yeah, and and I've I've been through this practically in in plenty of situations where, you know, you try and propose a refactoring to someone and and everyone just winces at the idea that if they do that refactoring, they know that they're going to have to spend the rest of the day just trying to figure out what test is broken and fix all these tests. And so there's a tendency just not to refactor. Um, Also, if the test is coupled to the implementation, then often you get a situation where the tests are just just a reiteration of the same thing that the the code says. So if you've got a method that if you pass it a null, it throws an argument null exception, 
then you've got a test that just says exactly the same thing, and you're just you're just kind of repeating yourself. Yeah. And you know, when, whenever you repeat yourself, you you end up with inconsistencies eventually. Um, so that's a bit of a pain. I repeat and, myself and the all thing, the time. Yeah. So, and the <laughs> other thing with it being just about unit testing means that you can't necessarily capture a lot of behaviors that are really important. So, uh, particularly in sort of UI kind of level, a lot of behaviors that we're interested in are not just individual method calls and not necessarily just individual HTTP requests, but they're things that happen over a series of method calls or a series of requests. And you can't really capture that behavior in just by writing a unit test about what a method does when you call it. Mm. So there's things that we can't really cover there. And then the kind of final problem about TDD that always sticks in my mind is the fact that people tend to be very aggressive about it. And they say, you know, you've got to do TDD and you've got to do it the way I say you do it. And if you don't, then you're a bad developer. And and if you try to do it and it doesn't seem to be working, then it's because you're doing it wrong. And, and, And that kind of aggression has maybe helped in terms of getting TDD adopted quite broadly quite quickly, but it's also been a bit of a drawback in terms of people are maybe doing it quite badly, and, and yet they don't realize they're doing it badly because they, they don't want to admit that they that it's not great. Yeah. So, you know, you've got all these kind of issues there, and and I think it was about, yeah, it was about 2005 when some of these really smart guys who've been doing TDD for a long time, people like Dan North and, um, well, some others who name I can't remember, they started thinking about you know, how they could get over all these problems because there is a lot of value in having automated specifications of your code. So they started, uh, well, they originally started with a a thought experiment, really, which was what if we try to solve the first problem, which is the fact that it's got the word test in it, by taking the word test out altogether. So we won't call it test-driven development anymore. We'll call it something else. And uh, we won't be trying to... uh, write tests about what the code does because, you know, that's testing. We really want to do design. So instead of calling them tests, we'll call them specifications and we'll try to specify uh, not how the code is implemented internally, but we'll try to specify what it, how it behaves on the outside. So that kind of attacks the, the second problem that I described, which is the, the tests coupled to the implementation bit. If you can stop writing uh, tests about implementation, and start yeah. writing specifications about behaviors, then the implementation that underlies that can be freer to change over time. And you can swap out one implementation for another. And as long as it's got the same behavior on the surface, then your specifications will still pass. And that's great. So that no longer acts as a disincentive to refactor. You can refactor as much as you want, as long as the externally observable behavior is still the same. Um, and then... Uh, in order to try and solve the problem where you can't necessarily capture certain behaviors in terms of calling individual methods, the uh, the BDD people started to use different tools, basically. So um, instead of just using traditional unit testing tools that call a method, they started using things like UI automation tools. So we can say, we'll write some specification that when a user uh, enters some stuff onto this screen and when they do that when they're logged in, then they get this behavior. And if they do it when they're logged out, then they get some other behavior. So um, it's it's a much sort of higher level, more abstract way of thinking about writing specifications about what your application actually does. And now you're thinking in terms of the workflow of a, of a user, right? In order for me to enter this order, I need the customer's name and address and his tax codes. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff there that don't necessarily correspond to a given method. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So you, BDD is not only done at the UI level, but when it is done at the UI level, absolutely, yeah, it probably is a description of what sort of things a user can do on a certain screen and what preconditions that have to, they have to satisfy in order to be able to do them. And as you say, yeah, it certainly doesn't correspond to individual method calls, and not doesn't correspond to individual classes or individual HTTP requests or anything. It's just a more abstract way of talking about behavior. And, and that yeah. means that you can freely change your implementation behind the scenes, and and that's fine as long as the, the desired behavior is still there. And that, that vagueness is maybe what's given it some pushback. I mean, the, the TDD people love TDD because it's a method. You know, it, there's a clear right way to do something. It's very black and white. Um, well, yeah, maybe maybe there's a right way to do things, but there's also a lot of disagreement within TDD about. Uh, what is a unit and what kind of mocking 
methodologies are really legitimate and which ones are sort of cheating and things like that. So it's not really like there's a sort of agreed group of TDD people who all yeah. think the same and all disagree with BDD. It's not, it's not really like that. It's more that the more people get into TDD, the more they start to think that actually they can relate to what the more experienced people are saying, which tends to be more along these BDD kind of lines. And people mm. tend to sort of migrate over time through from this sort of simplistic way of just writing tests about what happens when you call methods to start thinking more broadly and more abstractly about how this can be thought of as behavior and how we can write specifications at that level. Yeah, it really does seem evolutionary that, you know, the, the uh, a methodology comes along that does seem to solve a problem and uh, then every problem becomes, you know, your tool is a hammer. Every problem becomes a nail, as we like to say. So, uh, yeah. but like, like you say, and I think we're all in agreement here that, you know, not, not, not always does it apply. You know, I think that the appeal of TDD more than anything for a developer is that you write code early and often. Right. And, you know, this you know how much trouble we used to get into when we actually had to think about the problem first and yeah. draw stuff on whiteboards? Like, why aren't you coding? TDD <laughs> is really good at getting you coding right away. Let's start writing some tests. Yeah, and, and uh, a guy like Mark Miller will say that, you know, he likes to he likes to just write some code and see what happens and then refactor it really quickly and, you know, at the speed of thought. That's why he likes these refactoring tools, you know, that he builds, the code rush and the refactor and... You know, a lot of people use ReSharper too, but just so that they can sort of think through with their fingers, you know, just like your eye tracks the cursor when you move the mouse, you use that to direct your eye to where you want to go. And, and it is sort of that same idea, I think. I that, like that line, thinking with your fingers. Yeah. That's very, that sounds to me like with TDD more than anything, where BDD is much more thinking with the domain expert, thinking about behavior. Yeah, if you're talking about what's happening up at the UI level, that's true. Yeah, you don't only have to do BDD up at the UI level. You can write specifications in, in a BDD style about things that are further down the stack. But the common pattern there is that you're not thinking about uh, describing how individual arguments get passed to methods and whether they throw exceptions and things like that. You're thinking about what the net effect of, of all these things are. And, uh, and, and from that, writing a specification that describes what that piece of the code is actually supposed to do. Yeah, so there's a kind of two kind of major different uh, approaches to writing BDD specifications. One of them is uh, in terms of actual code itself. So uh, probably the first of these was RSpec on Ruby, and since then we've got things like uh, MSpec on .NET. And these are ways of writing classes in, in regular C-sharp or some, or some other .NET library language that when executed, runs your specification. And so that directly calls methods on your classes and, and makes assertions about what they're going to do. And then there's the whole other kind of world of BDD tooling, which is the uh, sort of human-readable text-based ones. And this all started off with a tool called Cucumber on Ruby again. And since then, we've got similar tools on .NET like Specflow and uh, Cuke for Nuke. And this is a way of writing specifications not in... .NET code or any other traditional language, but in a domain-specific language that you kind of create and evolve as you go along. So in terms of how you might describe UI interactions, you'd write a text file which says something like, given I am a logged-in user and I go into the home page, when I uh, enter a search term and click the search button, then I see some search terms, that search results that are visible for my user account. So that, that might be a specification that's just written in English like that. And then the tooling parses that by uh, just splitting it up into preconditions, which are lines that start with given, and actions, which are lines that start with when, and assertions, which are lines that start with then. And then it calls some other uh, code that you've written to actually implement those steps. So you write a, a method which implements the given I am on the home page, and you write some other method which is then I see some search results or something like that. And then you can compose them together using this uh, domain-specific language. And that really encourages you to think in very abstract, businessy kind of terms uh, because you're not in your specifications talking about code at all. You're just talking about things that users can do and, and concepts that are meaningful in your business domain. And uh, the reason I started thinking about all this is because, as you were saying, uh, 
sometimes it's really useful to just start coding first and just see where it gets you to. Right. Well, the kind of BDD equivalent to all that is just start writing some specifications, possibly even months before you're ready to write the implementation. You might have a meeting with a client where they say, this is roughly how our application is supposed to work. And at that point, you can just write some specifications there. And it's, it's not like a traditional unit test where it won't compile because you haven't got an implementation. It doesn't need to compile because it's just plain text. And so these things can stick around in your source control system for months until such time as you're ready to actually implement them. And at that point, you write the code, you write the step definitions, and you check that the whole thing uh, matches up together and you get a green result when it actually runs. And then you know you've done it according to that specification that you wrote months ago. Well, and the question then, of course, is how do you keep those specs alive, right? Because if they're not directly connected to code, you don't get reminded that you've got them. Oh, you do. Yeah, they are executable. So you, you can do a run through the whole thing, and your automation system is going to tell you which one's passed, which one's failed, and which ones are still pending. And the pending ones are the ones that you've not implemented yet. And so you, you've got a kind of workflow there of what development is left to be done. And you also know which work is done and it's good and which things you've just broken recently because that's the ones that have failed. Right. So uh, I'm just going to jump ahead here a little bit because you were talking about tooling, SpecFlow. Yeah, okay. So SpecFlow is a, a .NET implementation of the same specification language that's used in Cucumber on Ruby. So right. the specification language is called Gherkin, which is, I suppose, a fun joke for people who program with Cucumber. And <laughs> SpecFlow is uh, it's a Visual Studio add-in. And what it does is it, allows, it gives you, in the file new menu, the option to create new feature files. And when you create a feature file, it's got a dot .feature extension, and you can start typing your plain text in English in there. And every time you press Control-S to save, if that runs a Visual Studio custom tool that parses your feature file and creates a code behind file from it, just like web forms. And the code behind file is uh, an end unit test fixture. And so it's parsed all the given when then bits out of the file and created uh, a C sharp class that invokes methods. And it's all marked up with the end unit test fixture attribute and the test attribute. So when you compile this assembly that contains your feature files, it's got .NET it's got um, n-unit test fixtures in it, then you can open that in any n-unit runner and run them, which means that it integrates really nicely into any continuous integration system that uses uh, n-unit test fixtures. It's cool, and it makes a lot of sense, actually. Richard, uh, Richard and I are a little bit sidetracked because as you were talking, uh, we just found this story. Uh, that Mary Jo Foley broke, actually, that Microsoft releases Silverlight for Symbian. Really? Yeah, so Nokia has dumped Symbian in favor of Silverlight. Microsoft and Nokia announced plans for the Silverlight for Symbian release in 2008. At that time, the pair said to expect the final code before the end of 2008. In March 2010, Microsoft released a beta of the Symbian Silverlight technology. The new release is for the S60 5th edition phones including the Nokia 5800 Express Music, Nokia N9, uh, I'm sorry, N97, and the 9, N97 Mini, according to the Nokia website. Wow, okay, that's quite a significant development. I'm surprised those devices have got enough power to run Silverlight, to be honest, because I, I know those devices quite well. I used to work for Nokia, actually, and they, they're not in any way near Nokia's sort of cutting-edge ones. Um, but, yeah, if they can get Silverlight running on that, then that's fantastic. Well, then, you know, the thing that we don't realize is that Nokia has a huge part of the market share. Do they have the majority of the market share? They're still the biggest phone company out there. 20 still. million users? It's, it's, yeah, like if that. you count everybody on the planet as equal, yeah, which is very egalitarian and American. But uh, in terms <laughs> of uh, which people are actually going to buy your products, obviously, I hear um, there's, you know, 20-year-olds in California and... Yeah, I'm not sure that Nokia has such a massive um, market share. You make a good in point. And in other news, thank God the kin is dead. <laughs> it was only like six weeks ago. That it was Let us pray. <laughs> yeah. That's just about the short, one of the shortest lived. I think only Bob beat out kin. <laughs> thank God. I'm just kind of stunned about the whole thing. Yeah. 
And, you know, I have a friend who uh, works at the Verizon store, and she, she, you know, isn't a technologist, but she understands what people use and what they like. She talks to me. She, she comes up to me. She says, what the hell is up with the kin? You know, <laughs> what is this thing? We can't sell those. They had to send it. Nobody bought them. They had to send them back. I don't know that they ever got released over in the UK. Yeah, yeah. They didn't. I don't think they got that far. Sort of the Hello Kitty of cell phones, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, but, you know, Hello Kitty makes gobs of money. Yeah, ex- well, you know, that kind of thing works when it's done well. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's see if we can pull this whole conversation back to MVC and BDD and SpecFlow, because I think there's an interesting picture painted here of... This is really what I think is remarkable about MVC is you never saw this kind of tooling, this sort of plug-in model around web development with Microsoft, ASP.NET in general, until MVC came along. Yeah, but, but what's the reason for that? Is, is it perhaps because actually we are, uh, we're suddenly accepting technologies that are coming from other sources more readily? You know, Microsoft is uh, obviously adopting jQuery very uh, warmly. And yes. Everyone is is happily learning a lot of stuff that's been um, developed in the Ruby communities, things like BDD, and then you know other technologies that are just purely client side. Well, that that doesn't have to be tied in with a particular server side framework as well. So the, this kind of ecosystem as a whole is growing. It's not just within Microsoft, and uh, it's not really necessarily because we've shifted to MVC, but maybe because web development as a whole is becoming a little bit more kind of blurring the boundaries between different technologies. Well, and, and also sophisticated. This is not just a static web page or a page where you fill in a form. We're building real apps here, and, and they need to be maintainable. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, but it, it, I appreciate that, you know, we, I think we were sold this bill of goods way off the beginning of MVC where they said, this is a niche product. This, this is not going to be widely accepted. Most people are going to stay over here. And, and I don't necessarily know the numbers one way or the other, but... MVC seems far more successful than I think even Microsoft anticipated. But in terms of noise of people speaking, then yeah, MVC completely overshadows web forms. But in terms of the number of applications that are actually deployed, well, it's the reverse. Web forms is massively dominant because you know people have been building and investing on that for a decade, just about. Whereas yeah. MVC is a baby by comparison. So yeah, I mean. It's difficult to decide what you're actually measuring success by. Um, but in terms of what direction things are going in, I, I certainly see more greenfield projects picking up on MVC than on web forms at the moment. Although maybe that's just the particular groups of people that I associate with. I'm not sure. Now, I think we're coming, we're about out of time here, Steve. I don't, I do want to get a plug in for your book. Absolutely. All right. So tell us a little bit. Of, I love A Press. Tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, yeah, all right. Well, I uh, I wrote a book about ASP and MVC one uh, last year. Well, started the year before that, and that went really well, uh, much better than I thought. Uh, I I didn't think it was going to sell very many copies when I discovered how many other people were writing books on the same subject, including some of the guys from Microsoft. So I, I was a little bit nervous about all that, but it went really well, and it sold a lot, and it was very well reviewed. Um, so based on that. Uh, A-Press asked me to write a second edition for MVC2, and I started that in about January this year, and I think we published uh, know, a couple of weeks ago, but anyway, it started shipping from Amazon US yesterday, um, so that is out now, and you can get that. That's um, If you want the page on Amazon, that's uh, com 1-E-F-Y, and um, go to that URL, because then I get some affiliate money from Amazon. And we also have a uh, link to that on our page. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm hoping that that will be as successful as the first edition. I don't know, because there's more competition this time. Um, but hopefully it's still a good resource. It's not a completely new book. Yeah, I've taken probably about 60% of the contents of the book are the same as the first edition, and the rest is either updated or new to cover the new features that are in MVC2 and also to cover a load of the kind of... Uh, design trends that have changed since then in terms of the way that we do testing and in terms of the way that we do things like um, using view models and things like that. So I've tried to update stuff according to the lessons that have been learned by people using MVC over the last year. 
Awesome. Well, thank you for your contributions to the uh, f- to the tool uh, to the tool space. I guess you could call it. Uh, Knockout looks really great, and thanks for all your great thoughts and explanations. And come back soon. Cool. All right. Well, fun talking to you. Have a good day. All right. Bye, bye, Stephen. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.